Lord, we thank you for what you're doing across the globe. Father, we know because your son says that you are always at work, that there has never been a time from the foundation of the world in which you have not been working, which you have not either been creating or redeeming, drawing, changing, harvesting seeds that have been planted, sending forth workers to plant seeds. So, Father, we thank you that you're working not only within our church, but you're working in other churches. We thank you that you're not only working in other churches, but you're working in the hearts and lives of cultures across the globe to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to those peoples and those places. Father, we thank you for the work that's going on in Argentina. We thank you for the faithfulness of Ellie's parents who saw fit to answer the call that you placed upon their lives to be a part of advancing the gospel work in Argentina. We thank you for the men and women, the boys and girls who've come to faith there over the years. We thank you for the church that has been planted there. A church that's faithfully serving you. A church that's faithfully serving their community. Father, we pray for your blessings upon them. We pray for your continued provision for their ministry. We pray, God, that you would multiply the work that you have started there and that it would spread throughout the country as men and women come to call upon your name. As young boys and girls are cared for in the name of Christ. And as the gospel witness is established, as seeds are planted, as they are watered, and as they are harvested, as men and women come to faith. Pray for Hector and Ellie and their baby as they are there now for their protection. I pray for traveling mercies as they return home, but also for faithful and fruitful labor while they are there in country. Father, I pray that you would use them. I pray they would return with stories of your faithfulness. I pray they would return with stories of life change and transformation. I pray they return with stories of not only change and transformation in the people that they've ministered to, but in their own lives. Father, I pray as well for the Latitude team that will go forth this Thursday. I pray that as we travel that you would keep us safe from illness or injury. And Father, we pray that we, as, as we are there on the ground uh, in South Africa, I pray that we would be an encouragement to the church that is there, uh, both in Port Shepston and in Durban. Father, I pray that we would be an encouragement to the young adults that have been in an internship process over this last year. That just our physical presence there might be an encouragement to uplift their spirits and to help launch them into the future as young adults, young men, young women who are going to lead in all domains of society. Father, I thank you for the process they've undergone this year as they've been discipled, mentored, instructed, served. And I pray that as they look forward to graduating from the internship program, I pray that it would be a milestone, an Ebenezer stone that they'd be able to lay in their lives that they'd be able to look back on and remember all your faithfulness, all your work up to this point, to have seen all that you've done and they look f- and, and look forward to what you will do in the future so that in days to come, whenever they may doubt, they may doubt your goodness, they may doubt your faithfulness, be able to look back at that Ebenezer stone and remember that you've brought them thus far and that you will not abandon them. Father, I pray for Keith and for Justin, for myself. I pray that you keep us sensitive to your Holy Spirit. 
that we would speak words of encouragement. And I pray that we would be encouraged by our brothers and sisters in the faith in those churches that Latitude partners with. For our time this morning, we pray that as we open the scriptures, that you would speak to us, open our ears to hear, our eyes to see. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, if you've got a kiddo in the room who is third grader under, and you'd like for them to go down the hall for their class as we open the scriptures for our sermon, Miss Jennifer and Miss Brooke are in the back of the room in the Blue Redeemer kids' shirts. We're going to be taking our kiddos down the hall, so you can, you're welcome to send them out with them. Uh, as they make their way out today, I uh, want to once again welcome you to our service. If you're a guest with us, my name's Shannon, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad that you've joined us when you came in. You should have found a guest card that looks like this in a seat somewhere around you. On one side of that's a place for some information about yourself. If you'd like to leave that with us, we'd love to send you some information about us. Uh, and the other side of that's just a place for prayer requests. If there are things we can pray with you or for you about, it'd be our honor to do that. If you fill out one of these cards, there is a box at that kiosk in the back of the room on your way out. You can leave it there today if you would like, and we'd love to be in touch. Uh, if you're online with us this morning, uh, tuning in from wherever you are, you can find that same information on the homepage of our website and leave that information there as well, and we'd love to connect with you. As I said, this will be the uh, last Sunday I'll be here for a couple of weeks, which means you get a well-deserved break from me in the pulpit, uh, and next weekend, Stanley John will be uh, stepping in to teach for us, and then the following weekend, Charles Jones will be preaching for us here at Redeemer. So I look forward to hearing from both of these men as the Lord burdened, has burdened their heart with a message from His Word as they faithfully exposit the Scriptures, and so I hope you look forward to that as well, and we'll be here in faithful support of them as they bring God's Word to us. But we're continuing in this series called Foundations, taking a look at trying to gain some clarity in an age in which there is so much confusion circulating within our culture. So we've been working our way through the first portion of the book of Genesis, and we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 4 this morning. I invite you to turn there. Uh, if you don't have a copy in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me as I read it for our hearing. But Genesis chapter 4, we're going to read the whole chapter together. So just hang in there, okay? Um, it won't take very long, I promise. Uh, but we'll read Genesis chapter 4 together, and then we'll come back and unpack it and try and see what the Lord has to say to us this morning through His Word. Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we read these words. Now Adam knew his wife, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions." And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? 
He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the, one, of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zilah. Adah bore Jabel, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zilah also bore Tubal-Cain, who was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zilah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. This is God's Word. Listen, on the night of April 20th, 2010, a surge of natural gas blasted through the concrete core of an oil well that was located nearly 5,000 feet beneath the surface of the Gulf of Mexico and extended nearly 18,000 feet, that's a long way, into the bedrock beneath the ocean's floor, a little over 40 miles off the coast of Louisiana. And when that core of that well fractured, the natural gas traveled up deep water horizon rigs, riser to the platform where it ignited, killing workers, and 11 workers, and injuring another 17. Eventually, two days later, on the morning of April 22nd, the deep water horizon rig would capsize and sink. And the capsizing of the rig would rupture the riser and result in oil being discharged into the gulf at unprecedented rates. The volume of oil escaping that damaged well was initially estimated by British Petroleum, the operator of the Deepwater Horizon rig, to be about 1,000 barrels a day. 
But it was later estimated by the U.S. government officials who oversaw the disaster that it peaked at more than 60,000 barrels a day being released into the Gulf of Mexico. And that went on for months as they sought to, to seal that well that was spewing oil into the water. The, the oil that leaked from the well before it was sealed, it formed a slick extending more than 57,000 square miles of the Gulf of Mexico. And as the oil began to contaminate the shoreline, the Louisiana beaches were hit first, followed by their marshes and estuaries, where all of this delicate balance of life was knit together. It was very difficult to clean up. By June, oil and tar balls had made landfall on the beaches of Mississippi, the beaches of Alabama, and the beaches of Florida. Some of you maybe remember this because you had to cancel vacations that year. In all, an estimated 1,100 miles of shoreline ended up contaminated. From that singular explosion that took place as that natural gas surged up the rig's riser, oil went everywhere, contaminating everything with which it came into contact. And church, I'm here to tell you this morning that the same thing that, is, that, that, that was true then in 2010 is true for life in a post-Genesis 3 world. Because when sin, like that surge of natural gas, explodes in Genesis 3, we saw that the last three weeks, we saw the essence of sin, the pattern of sin, the impact of sin in Genesis chapter 3. When it explodes in Genesis 3, it begins to contaminate everything and everyone that it touches. And this is the story of Genesis 4. The contamination that it produces. See, Genesis 4 traces the contamination of sin and the escalation of sin through its pages. It begins with the first murder recorded in human history where one brother would rise up to slay another brother in cold blood with his bare hands and is followed by the line of that brother of Cain making great cultural advancements while simultaneously escalating the sin of Cain and, com and contaminating the very culture they were creating with unprecedented acts of violence and polygamy and vengeance. The spirit of Cain continues to perpetuate itself of coming to God on their own terms and then erupting in anger when he would not accept their offering. The same happens today as well. Because sin was not contained in Genesis chapter 3, but rather it continued to spread and it Everything that it touches, it contaminates. And the Bible is very clear that it has touched everything and everyone in human history. And so this morning as we take a look at Genesis chapter 4, we want to see sin's contaminating effects, but also its escalating nature, and then see what God does as a response. So the first things first, how does sin contaminate? Listen church, sin Sin contaminates the soul with self. Let me show you that in the, in the text. See, the way of Cain, as it's been called out of Genesis chapter 4, attempts to come to God on its own terms and then erupts in anger when he will not accept what we are willing to bring to him. 
and then directs its anger against God towards others whom God has received because they've come to God on God's terms, then it sulks in self-righteous anger and self-pity and finally defies God to the very end. That is the way of Cain that you see in Genesis chapter 4. Let me show it to you. Let's look at how the story unfolds in the first 16 verses of Genesis 4. First of all, you see self-directed worship. Self-directed worship. In verses 3 to 5, we read about two offerings that get brought to God by these two brothers, Cain and Abel. One who was a worker of the ground and one who was a keeper of the sheep. In verses, verse 3, we read, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. In other words, the text is telling us this, that God accepts Abel's offering but rejects Cain's offering. And it begs the question, why? Why does God accept the one and reject the other? I mean, both of them brought, right, from the fruit of their labors. One's a worker of the ground, the other's a keeper of the sheep. One brings fruits of the ground that he has harvested. The other brings of the firstborn of the flock. Why does God accept one and reject the other? His way, out of his way, in verse 4. To say that when Abel brings his offering, he brings the firstborn and of its fat portions. In other words, what Abel brings to the Lord is the best that he has. That's what he offers to God. Yet Cain, on the other hand, brought some of the fruits of his harvest. Moses says nothing about it being the first fruits or the choicest fruits, right? Cain could have, right, gone to the, the, the expiry section, right, of the grocery store, just grabbed all the brown mangoes and rotten apples, whatever that he could find, and brings it to the Lord, thinking that that would be acceptable to God. Moses says nothing about the first fruits or the choicest of the harvest, one commentator said it this way, In actuality, the key to Cain's failure is found in the narrator's careful description of their tributes or their offerings. Cain brings some of the fruits. There's no indication that these are the first or the best. In other words, we might say it this way, Cain thought he could decide for himself what God should accept. That whatever he was willing to bring, God should be grateful for. This is why whenever you see Cain show up through the rest of the new, in, the, in the New Testament, he's mentioned three times. He's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, he's mentioned in 1 John chapter 3, and he's mentioned in Jude 11. And on those three occasions, I want you to see the pattern that shows up when Cain is mentioned. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4, we're told that whenever Cain brings, uh, or what, 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 what but, but it's in, what, what, that the difference between Cain's offering and Abel's offering was this, that when Abel brought his offering, he brought it in faith. He brought it trusting the Lord. He brought it abiding by God's command that he had given. And so there, Cain does not, we're led to believe Cain does not bring an offering in faith. Second of all, in 1 John chapter 3, we're told that Cain's deeds were evil. What, was e what were evil about Cain's deeds? It's before he even slays his brother Abel. What was evil about Cain's deeds is he thought he could say to God, God, you should accept whatever I'm willing to bring. It's this attitude of arrogance, self-exaltation, and pride. 
The other place that Cain is mentioned is in Jude chapter 11, and he's mentioned there as a pattern for his life that shows up later in those who thought they could determine what was and what was not acceptable to God. Over and over and over again, you see in the New Testament authors, they're going to say Cain had an issue of arrogance, pride, self-exaltation. His, he had this, this issue of self-directed worship of thinking that he could define what was appropriate ways to worship God. Cain was the first human in history to say, I can come to God on my own terms. Who is God to say what is acceptable and what is not? And listen, church, everything and everyone that sin touches, it contaminates with this mindset. Who is God to say? Who is God to have authority? Who is God to be listened to? Who is God to be submitted to? Everything that sin touches, it contaminates with that mindset of self-directed worship. Second, you see self-righteous anger. See, following Cain's rejection of his offering, or God's rejection of, of Cain's offering, Cain boils over in anger. In fact, his anger is so intense that we're told you could see it on his face. Right? You can imagine a cartoon-like caricature of Cain, right? Just his blood boiling in his face, his countenance, his eyebrow furrowed as he's writhing in anger that God would reject his offering. And God sees this and he does something. He graciously warns Cain to rule over that beast that's within him. In fact, that's how he likens sin. He says sin is crouching at your door like a wild animal that wants to pounce on you, take you down, control you, and master you. And he says sin is crouching like that. There's a beast within you, but you must exercise some self-control, Cain. You must rule over it. Not allow your base urges to rise up within you and determine how you're going to respond. And yet Cain does not heed the warning. And out of hatred towards God, he rises up and slays his own brother in the field. And this was, this was likely cold-blooded murder, murder with Cain's own hands. Remember, there's no guns at this point to depersonalize things. He's not sniping him from a hundred yards away. He's not dropping a smart bomb on him to blow him up into pieces. Okay, he's in the field with him and uses his own hands to take the life of his own brother. And when God confronts Cain, Cain outright lies and then refuses to take responsibility for his actions. See, Cain was the first human in history not only to say, who is God to establish the terms of worship? But he's also the first human in history to misdirect, play the victim, and to say it wasn't his fault. Third, Self-pity. Self-pity. God pronounces judgment upon Cain. See, Cain had been a man who was deeply connected to the land as a worker of the ground. And now he would be exiled to this nomadic life of wandering. To a, in a land named Nod. Now, names in the Bible oftentimes have significance. And the, the name Nod doesn't come from winking and blinking. Okay? The little kid's story. Okay? It actually in Hebrew meant wandering. That's what it meant. So here you have a wanderer exiled to a land of wandering. But we have no home, 
No place to call his own. No place to establish roots for himself. But even under the judgment of God and the facing the consequences of his sin, Cain shows no signs of remorse, no signs of repentance, no signs of concern for his dead brother, for his grieving parents, or for the God in whose image his brother was made. Rather, all Cain can think about at this point is Cain. Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. Away from this place that I'm so deeply connected to. And from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Cain is consumed with self-pity here. And even here, God is gracious because what does God do in response? He marks Cain with a mark. There's all kinds of speculation and commentators about what that mark is. All we can be certain of is that God establishes a mark somewhere on Cain that will be a warning to anyone who would seek to take vengeance for Abel's blood that God would bring sevenfold recompense upon that individual. So He preserves Cain's life. Out of grace, he preserves Cain's, preserves Cain's life and says the only one who has the right to demand Cain's life is me and anyone who would seek to repay Cain for Abel. I will take revenge upon them sevenfold. And yet Cain, even at this point, is incapable of feeling sorry for anyone other than himself. Full of self-pity. And then fourth, you have self-defiance. See, Cain goes away from the presence of the Lord, and he does settle east of Eden in the land of wandering and Nod. And yet, if you continue, as we continue to read the story, he doesn't wander the rest of his life. Because we're told in verse 17, in one last act recorded of self-defiance, what does he do? He establishes a city and names it after his firstborn son. In other words, God said, you're going to wander for the rest of your life. He says, no, I'm not. I'm going to settle somewhere. I'm going to set down roots. I'm going to build a city. I'm going to name it after my son. See, everything that sin touches, it contaminates with this mindset because it contaminates the soul with self. Self-directed worship, self-righteous anger, self-pity, and self-defiance, shaking our fist at God, saying, I will have things my way. Some of you are probably familiar with William Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus. I want you to hear it this morning, the words of it. He says, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is the meter and verse of Cain's life. I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. This is what sin does to a life. 
It contaminates it with self-directed worship, self-righteous anger, self-pity, and self-defiance, shaking our fist at God. And everything it touches, it contaminates. See, there are traces of this in me, and there are traces of this in you. Sin contaminates the soul with self. But not only does it contaminate, listen church, it also escalates. I've been to South Africa now, this will be my fifth time. And every year whenever we go, we spend some time in Durban, South Africa. And in some of our downtime, we have a chance to go into some of the shops and visit some of the restaurants there in Durban. And one of the places that we often frequent um, this is a secret to my children. They don't know this is where their souvenirs come from, from a mall, right? So I'm, I'm letting that out there to them this morning, from a mall in South Africa called the Pavilion Shopping Center, okay? Now, the Pavilion Shopping Center is a massive, sprawling shopping center, big mall, okay? Listen, while big malls are kind of on the decline here in the States, they are on the rise in other parts of the world, okay? This is a massive place with multiple levels built into the hillsides and dug down deep into the soil. And so whenever you walk into the place, you are in this labyrinth of staircases and escalators, Okay, that go from level to level to level to level. In fact, if you see a picture of the Pavilion Mall cross-cut with the different levels, you see the escalators crossing one another like X's as they go up and down and up and down and up and down over and over and over again. And those escalators, they take you from one level to the next. I remember this, when my kids were young, we would get on the escalators and they would hold our hands and put one hand on that little rail and they would just ride along with their big smiles, right? Because it's just this phenomenal experience. To, you're not even walking, right? It's taking you up. You're going up a level or you're coming down a level, right? Because that's what escalators do. They move you from one level to the next. And so whenever I say sin escalates, it, it, it levels up. Right? It levels up. And it levels up, listen church, in culture. In culture. It contaminates us personally and escalates us in us and around us corporately and culturally. Because that's how sin works. It escalates in people and places over time. And you see this in Genesis chapter 4. In the middle of the chapter, in verses 17 to 24, we see that not only does sin contaminate everything it touches, but it levels up as it proceeds from one generation to the next, impacting not only the individuals on a personal level, but also impacting the culture that they would establish and create and develop. In verses 17 to 24, we find this this very intriguing, we could, we could dig into this for a long time this morning, but we don't have a long time, so I'm just going to give it to you straight, right? We find this very intriguing development of culture in several ways. In verse 17, we read of the first cities being established as Cain establishes a city in the name of his firstborn son. Another one of Cain's ancestors, right, becomes, comes onto the scene in verse 20 and becomes the prototypical 
agricultural and livestock right type person. He's going to stock shows and rodeos all across the ancient world as he cares for the animals of the field. So you have agriculture and livestock on the scene. In verse 21, another one of Cain's ancestors develops the arts as they play the lyre and the pipe. Okay? And in verse 22, you have another one of Cain's ancestors who begins to develop industry as he fashions and forms things out of bronze and iron. So you have technology, you have the arts, you have agriculture, you have livestock, you have cities being developed here through Cain's line. And with all of this cultural advancement and with all of this cultural development, there is also degradation that's taking place within the culture that rises from Cain's line. And you see this clearly in verses 23 and 24. Because Moses breaks out a little bit of a a, a poem here or a song from one of Cain's ancestors called Lamech. Now Lamech was sixth in the generations that descended from Cain, including Cain himself. He was the sixth generation. And listen, church, just as the number seven throughout the Bible indicates completeness or it indicates perfection or it indicates wholeness, the number six being one shy of seven, if you do the math right, okay, it it also indicates a a degree of incompleteness, a degree of imperfection or a lack of wholeness. In other words, the number six oftentimes is associated with humanity, The number seven is often associated with God. The number six is often associated with humanity. And humanity in their imperfection, in their sin, in their frailty, in a lack of dependence upon God. And so what you have is Moses is highlighting for us the sixth generation in the line of Cain has progressively gotten worse and worse as sin has contaminated that, that essentially that line. As a type of people who would shake their fist at God. And what you have is the height of what man becomes when his soul is contaminated with self in the person of Lamech. That's what Moses is trying to point out to us. You see, you see several things in this poem that's highlighted. First, you see the undoing of God's covenant design for marriage as Lamech takes not one wife, but two. So you see the first recorded instance in the Bible of polygamy. That God had established a design for covenant marriage in which he said one man, one woman for one life. And yet Lamech says, that's not enough for me. I'm going to take two wives for myself. You see, in addition, you see the brutality of men beginning to dominate and domineer women. You can imagine Lamech as he calls, because he's not just content to sing this song. He wants his wives to hear this song. He wants his wives to know just how bloodthirsty he is. I can imagine Lamech beating his bare chest saying, women, listen to me. Listen to me as I sing about how vindictive I am. So you better be careful never to cross me or disagree with me. You also see his bloodthirsty desire for revenge. See, the sevenfold revenge that God would met out against someone who took Cain's life earlier in the story is now escalated to a 77-fold revenge meted out not by God, but by Lamech. 
for someone who wounds or strikes him. And the Hebrew word says a young, our English says a young man, but the Hebrew word of that is a child because a young man in the ancient world was not like somebody in their 20s and 30s, okay? A young man was often somebody in their early teens. It says, if a child insults me, if a child strikes me, I will require their blood. So you see, in this sixth generation from Cain, the escalation to the height of what man becomes when he shakes his fist at God and his soul becomes contaminated with self. So that even as great cultural developments are going on, that same culture that's developing is being degraded. And so listen, one of the things this tells us, church, is that we cannot say today that things are worse than they've ever been. Okay, Because in every culture and in every generation, this is the pattern of the self as it's contaminated by sin. See, every culture and every generation says, this is as bad as it has ever been. And they're probably right in their generation. But if you look back at every generation and in every culture that sin has touched, you see great developments and great advancements, but also simultaneously you see great degradation and decay. They go hand in hand. In fact, I want you to hear the words of Kent Hughes. I found his commentary on this so helpful this week. As this replays itself in every culture and generation, this is what he writes. It's a lengthy quote, but I want to read it to you. He says, These cultural skills... Production of food, the livestock, the arts, the pipe and the lyre, technology, the bronze and the iron, the cities being developed. He says, these cultural skills should be and can be devoted to the highest interest of human life and to the glory of God. However, civilization's advances apart from God have untold potential for evil. Nuclear technology, for example, is a double-edged sword, he says. Today, thousands of lives are being saved by diagnostic procedures only possible through nuclear medicine. What a boon it has been and will become. The potential for good is staggering. However, in a flash, an H-bomb could kill more people than nuclear medicine can save in a generation. And maim generations to follow. Oppenheimer's quotation of the Bhagavad Gita at Almagorda as he watched the initial explosion of the neutron bomb comes to mind. The radiance of a thousand suns. I am become as death, the destroyer of worlds. Or a microchip can be used to help you find your dog that goes missing in the neighborhood or got a smart bomb through your bedroom window. Can we imagine a life without drugs, without painkillers, without estrogens, without antibiotics? At the same time, can we today imagine a life without the whole neighborhoods under the control of cocaine and heroin? And I would add to his statement, it was written a number of years ago, opioids and the abuse of those same painkillers. The victims lying about, he says, wrapped in greasy newspapers like fish and chips. He says, what a gift music and arts are, but what a powerful evil they can be if misused. The stage and the screen regularly portray evil as exciting. And goodness is dull and boring. Reality is in fact the very opposite. Life in the grip of sin is tedious and unfulfilling. Whereas a life full of God's goodness is bright 
and brilliant and full of new adventure. We all understand that some types of music are debasing. But we must also understand that high culture, for example, the music of Bach and Beethoven, can be used to romanticize an adulterous or homosexual affair. In any screenplay, virtually any evil can be made to appear morally compelling by the skillful use of script, music, or cinematography. One more thing. He says, culture used or abused offers no redemption. Neither low culture, nor pop culture, nor high culture apart from God can redeem. No combination of agricultural abundance, the arts and technology can save society. And then he says this, Nazi Germany in its day considered itself the repository of high art, the leader in technology, and the master of abundance, all the while the Third Reich enslaved helpless peoples and promoted and performed unspeakable barbarisms. You see it over and over and over again. The advancement of technology, the development of technology, which simultaneously comes with the degradation of that same technology. Because what God intends for good, humans oftentimes hijack for evil. Now you've probably heard it over and over again, right? You can stream a sermon on the internet or you can stream pornography on the internet. Both are widely available. Sin escalates in cultures. You see it on the pages of Scripture and you see it in every generation. So what does God do about this? Listen, church, while sin contaminates people and it escalates in cultures. I want you to hear this. God designates. Now I'll preach, right? Contaminates, escalates, designates. They all rhyme. God designates a people for himself and his praises in the midst of a developing and deteriorating culture. And so you go, you may look at this, all that we've said so far, and you go, what do we do with this? Let me tell you what I believe we do with this. We proclaim the goodness of God in the midst of a culture that is shaking its fist at Him in rebellion. See, the grace of God shows up on the pages of Genesis chapter 4 as we read not only about this unrighteous line of Cain but also as we're introduced in the latter portions of Genesis 4 to the righteous line of Seth. Verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, At that time, church, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, you might ask yourself the question, what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? To call upon the name of the Lord essentially means this, to worship the God who was the covenant creator. You see, listen, this is is amazing to see. 
It's amazing to see. While Cain's firstborn and his successors, they pioneer cities and civilized arts. But Seth's firstborn and successors pioneer worship. While Cain and his successors are busy creating and developing culture, which ultimately deteriorates because of evil, Seth and his successors are calling upon God's name. They're, they're, they're glorifying God in worship. That's what it means to call on the name of God, to worship Him for who He is, to declare His praises. To be a people who would declare the praises of the one, as Peter says, who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see that beginning in the very earliest pages of the Bible. And as Canaanite, right, civilization began to rise and worship at the shrines of abundance and art and technology and abuse and violence and the devaluation of human life became commonplace when vengeance became exponential off the page. When men fancied that they were captains of their own souls, Seth and his successors and the civilization that would rise from him began to proclaim the name of the Lord who was the captain of their destiny, of their fate, of their souls, of their salvations. And listen, Christians, we must understand that before the Abrahamic covenant ever came, that before the law was ever given, that before the flood ever covered the face of the earth, that God was designating or appointing. That's what Eve says. God has appointed another seed. Another seed, which I believe, and I'm not the only one who believes this, is a reference back to Genesis 3.15. Right? The seed that would crush the head of the serpent, that from this line would one day come a Messiah who would rise and who would not say, I'm going to exact revenge 70 times 7, but that you should extend forgiveness how many times? 70 times 7. God is appointed. He's designated another seed. To have a redemptive presence in the midst of this culture that is deteriorating around it. One that would proclaim the goodness of God. That would worship God for who He is. That would highlight the character of God. The beauty of God. The grace of God. In a culture that shook its fist and said, I will have things my way. I will define what should be acceptable and what should not be acceptable. This people would proclaim the character of the Lord, sing His praises. That's what God's people have always done throughout periods of sacred history, including this one that we live in today. See, I believe this text serves as a paradigm for us to understand civilization, culture as it develops. And it, 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 culture does develop and it rises impressively. But it demises just as quick because of sin. And the only hope in the midst of a degrading, unraveling culture, church, is to do this. To call upon the name of the Lord and declare His praises. Declare His goodness. And if we're going to do that, let me give you three things that you've got to do. Right? Three things. And these are going to be quick. Okay? I promise. One. One, you have to reject capitulation. 
know what it means to capitulate something? To give in to it. To yield yourself to it. To allow it to wash over you and consume you. To let it be the defining norm for your life. You have to reject capitulating to the values of an ever-rising and developing and simultaneously degrading culture. Right? And so whenever the culture says, listen, we've embraced the sexual revolution, we, as God's people, must say we've rejected that same sexual revolution. And that we believe that God has made us in His image for one man, one woman, for one life. We cannot capitulate. But second of all, listen church, we cannot isolate ourselves either. We cannot. And I believe there is a movement to do that within many churches today, just to want to isolate from the culture around us because the culture is going to hell in a handbasket, right? And so we just want to pull out of everything in every place that we might have impact. Listen, we can gather on and should gather on Sunday mornings to declare the goodness of God, His praises, His excellencies. But listen, if all we're doing is declaring that to one another, we are building each other up. But if we're not declaring that into the places of darkness, into the places of despair, into the places where people have lost hope because they put their hope in the advancement of society, society begins to unravel, they no longer have any hope, and they need hope. If we're not declaring God's praises into those dark places, then we've lost our call as salt and light in a culture that is dark and decaying. So we cannot isolate ourselves and pull out of every place that needs light and salt. So we can't capitulate, we can't isolate, so what must we do? If we avoid, reject capitulation, and we reject isolation, we must embrace redemption. Having a redemptive presence in the midst of a culture that is falling apart. So that whenever people do hit rock bottom, there are people and places for them to look to, to say, all of this has failed. Is there any hope? I know some people who may have an answer. That's the kind of presence the church ought to have in the midst of a decaying culture. A redemptive one. So that we don't just reject technology, but we redeem it. For good and godly purposes. We don't just reject the arts and high culture. We redeem the arts and high culture. We don't just reject pop culture. We redeem pop culture insofar as it can be, right? <laughs> we don't just reject low culture, but we redeem low culture insofar as it can be. There are some things that must be rejected, other things that can be redeemed. We do so to the glory and praise of God. And proclaim His goodness through them. Through our media. Through our music. Through our arts. Through the advancement and uses of technology. We proclaim His goodness. Redeeming those things. Not saying, I'm going to get rid of my computer and never check an email again. Right? Never log on to the internet again. 
There are some guardrails you can put in place to engage in a healthy way and be a redemptive presence in spaces that are dark and hopeless. Because that's exactly, church, listen, what the Lord Jesus has done. He did not capitulate. He didn't come in and just say, hey, have it your way, people. Right? He wasn't Burger King in his incarnation. Right? It's not what he said. Right? Just do whatever you want. Right? He raises the dignity of people who are caught in sin and says, go and sin no more. He didn't say, have it your way. But he also didn't isolate. Right? He engages with he engages with the sinners and the tax collectors where they are to have a redemptive presence. And you want to know something, church? That's the reason you're here today. And that's the reason I'm here today. Because apart from that, all of us would be hopelessly lost. So listen, I want to encourage you this week, pray, think about what it looks like for you, for your family, to have a redemptive presence in the midst of a decaying culture. To be the kind of salt and light that Jesus envisions in the Sermon on the Mount. Because every place and every person has been touched by sin and contaminated. And every culture, it escalates in. That's why, that's why, God is gathering for himself a people from among all peoples. You know what that means? That in every culture where sin is contaminating and escalating, God, God is appointing. And God is designating a people for himself to declare his praises, to call on his name. Let us be a part of that. Let's pray together. Father, today, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sin. We thank you that you did not leave us to fend for ourselves. But that God, even when we shook our fist at you, even through our self-directed worship and through our self-righteous anger and through our self-pity and self-defiance, you were, just as you graciously pursued Cain, you were graciously pursuing us. And we thank you, God, that you did not abandon humanity to its own impulses, but that you saw fit to set aside a people for yourself, even in primeval history, which would have a redemptive presence. Father, in a culture which seems every day to mirror the escalation that we see in Genesis 4, may we as a church take seriously our responsibility to be a people who proclaim your goodness, to call, who call on your name, that we would not capitulate to the norms and values around us, that we would not isolate ourselves from the places of darkness and 
decay, but that we would have a redemptive presence in them in the same way that you sent your son to redeem those who were lost. Father, help us each to pray about what that looks like in our lives. And as you lead, may we follow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. While you stand this morning, church, as we sing together in response to what God has said, He's indeed worthy of every song that we could ever sing. All our praises proclaim His goodness, church. Proclaim His goodness as we call on His name.